Welcome back to the 82nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories talking about the ever-growing division between the Republicans and the Democrats, the Democrats and the Socialists, and then there's an article talking about how we can actually come together and how some Supreme Court justices who are on very different sides of very different issues have come together in a recent decision. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into our daily debate. So when I say to you DSA, what does that bring to mind? I've done a podcast before talking about them as a group. They are the Democratic Socialists of America. They're basically the progressive party of, or if you want to think about it, they're the furthest left party in the United States. They don't have much representation on the federal level, at least not official party members as far as I'm aware. But they do have lots of different members who are coming up in the state elections. And my question to you is, do we need this third party? Some people have argued we need a libertarian third party. Some people say that we need more than three parties. We need to have something that's similar to Israel in it, the fact that it's a coalition government where multiple different parties have to come together and give in on certain key issues between one another in order to ensure that they keep power and they can actually get part of their legislative agenda done. So do you think more than two parties is necessary? And do you think the Democratic Socialists of America should be one of those parties? Do you think a Libertarian, Green Party, so on and so forth? What do you think about all these different parties? And do you see America becoming more than just a two-party system? Because as we'll talk about today, the two parties are really at odds with one another, and they don't fully represent everybody in America. And that can become an issue. All right, so let's jump to our first article. This one comes from Just the News. Florida Republican pushes bill that could eliminate state Democratic Party. Now, that's a very obvious, straightforward headline. And you may be reading that like, oh, no, okay, they're being hyperbolic. No, the, the Florida representative is quite literally a troll, or at least that's how it appears, because this is outright, when I first read this, I thought this was so outrageous. What do you mean you're going to introduce a bill that outright bans the other party? And of course, there is a little bit more to this than just outright saying that Democrats are not allowed to vote in elections or are not allowed to participate or they're not allowed to call themselves Democrats when they're running for office. But it's still, at the end of the day, something that's outrageous and it should not be allowed by any, and I mean any, state, any legislator, anyone who has their mind in the right place, who has their head screwed on correctly, should not be okay with this. This is outright banning an opposite political party. And yes, of course, maybe it's just the name that they're banning. Or, oh, 
your name the Democratic Party in Florida? Well, what if we reorganize to be a different party after we get banned? Then, of course, they can still organize and they can still get elected. But this is dangerous because what happens when Democrats get into the legislature in Florida? They have control. And they said, oh, remember that time you tried to completely disband us? And now we have a larger majority and we can actually get this passed. And more of our members are in favor of it rather than this, this one man in Florida who's proposing it. Maybe more Democrats are okay with it and actually want to put that bill through to disband the Republican Party because they feel aggrieved by this one man trolling. So you always have to ask, what happens when the shoe is on the other foot? And is this going to come back to bite me in the butt, especially in the political world? All right, so I'll grab a little quote from here so you can understand what's really going on. Quote, a Florida Republican this week introduced a bill to require the state division of elections to reject the electoral filings of a political party that previously advocated for slavery. Dubbed the Ultimate Cancel Act, State Senator Belize Ingogila planned... uh, Ingogila's plan would automatically notify members of a quote-unquote canceled party that it had been dissolved and to change their party affiliation to no party affiliation, NBC News reported, end quote. So you see what he's doing here. He is not actually saying that these people, these Democratic representatives, are not allowed to be in the state Senate or the state Congress, but rather saying that the Democratic Party should be dissolved and these people would now have to go as non-affiliates. And of course, it is a little bit clever here trying to use the lefts, and I say the lefts here, not the liberal, not the mainstream liberal, but the far left who very often try to use this idea that America is a slave a nation built on the backs of slaves and the practice of slavery and try to wield it against political opponents or people who may have benefited from the slavery that built this country in their minds. So what you see the authors pointing out here is that, oh, the senator is saying, well, the Democratic Party used to support Slavery. They advocated for slavery before the Civil War. They were the party of the South. And that's, that's outrageous. We, we can't have that. They have to be canceled, which seems to follow some of the people on the left's logic, which is your previous actions, no matter how long ago they were, no matter how much you've changed, can come back to haunt you and can cause you to be canceled in the here and now. So you're looking back maybe 125 years, if not a little bit longer, to the actions of previous Democrats and then kind of taking that sin, that original sin, and projecting it onto the current Democratic Party, which is, of course, is absolutely absurd. And I think that's exactly what the senator is trying to get at here, which is this idea that your previous actions, that the sins of your fathers, your forefathers, could come back and haunt you is outrageous. And that's the point that he's trying to make here. And, of course, there is something to be said for people that benefited directly from slavery and have benefited directly from human rights abuses 
And of course, that should be taken into account. But that doesn't mean that you can blame the son for the sins of the father. So he's trying to take the woke cancel culture and even remove the word woke. He's trying to take cancel culture and take it to a absolute extreme to show how dangerous this can be. And I think what's even more dangerous about this is even if this senator is trolling and he's trying to get a good laugh, he's trying to make a political point here, at the end of the day, he is opening the door. It's not that he genuinely wants to cancel the Democratic Party, or at least that's, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here and say that's not what he wants. But at the end of the day, he's opening the door to the Democrats coming in and saying, well, hey, one of the senators, one of the local senators from Florida, tried to outright ban our party. You see the escalation here? You see what the Republicans, the far right, are doing? And I think this kind of political trolling, which is what you've seen DeSantis do. DeSantis sent the immigrants, the migrants, who came into Florida to Martha's Vineyard. Do you remember that political stunt? All of these stunts, while they may seem small and they may not have a grand effect, at the end of the day, one side can use them as an argument as the other side's escalating. They're doing things outside the norm. They're trying to score political points in the short term, and it's actually damaging. And then they can use that as justification to do their own little slights. And then the Republicans will come back and say, well, look, now you guys are going outside the norms. You guys are trying to ban said thing. And it just devolves from there. You can see it becomes a tit for tat. And it's slow and very, it's basically the frog in the water. It's a slow boiling. It's a slow tit for tat that degrades the political landscape and also eventually degrades the culture because then you see the citizens, they're like, oh, well, the Democrats and Republicans, they're just tit-tat, back and forth, back and forth. They're not actually doing anything substantive anymore. They're just trying to get payback for previous actions. And that is not how our society should operate. But let me uh, grab one more quote from this article before we move on, just to really drive this point home. Ngogalia indicated that the measure was a retaliation for Democratic activists, quote, trying to cancel people and companies for things they may have said or done in the past, end quote, the outlet noted. Florida has increasingly skewed Republican in recent years, with Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis winning re-election in 2022 by a decisive 19 points in a formerly purple state. In the wake of that electoral rout, state Democrats tapped Nikki Freed to lead a party teetering on the edge of irrelevance. The Florida Democratic Party was predictably irate over Ignolia's proposal. The presenting, presenting it, quote, presenting a bill that would disenfranchise five million voters is both unconstitutional and unserious, the party told NBC News. Quote, under Ron DeSantis, Senator Ignola is using his office to push bills that are nothing more than publicity stunts instead of focusing on issues that matter most to Floridians, end quote. And I 100% agree here. At the end of the day, if this senator actually wants to get things done and help the members of his district, he would not be going around putting up troll bills like this. 
And I, like I said, I understand it gets his name in the news. Look, I'm even, I'm talking about him right now. He made it into the news cycle. And let's be clear. I'm not saying I am major. I'm not saying that I have any influence. I'm not saying that this story is going to go nationwide just because I'm reporting on it. But the fact that someone is reporting on it, someone has noticed his actions and is saying something about it and trying to get it out to a wider audience is exactly what he's going for. He's trying to build his name recognition through trolly actions like this. But the Democrats are right. It's a stunt. And at the end of the day, it's not actually helping the voters who he is supposed to represent. And maybe some of them do like that. But at the end of the day, are they going to have a easier life because of it? Are they going to have tax breaks because of it? Are they going to be able to send their kids to the school they want? Are they going to get school choice? Are they going to have better welfare benefits because of this? No, 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 no. All of those things are things that could actually help the citizens. And by proposing bills like this, you're wasting the time of the Congress in Florida. And it's pointless. And I understand at the end of the day, like I said, he is trying to win political points. But don't do it at the expense of the voters who put you into office in the first place. That's my opinion on the matter. I do think it's funny, but I don't actually think it's prudent, and I, I think it can be dangerous long-term. All right, let's jump to our second article. This one comes from The Daily Beast. Socialists took over this state's Democratic Party. Now they're bailing. So this article is talking about Drum roll, please. Nevada. Yeah, you didn't know that the DSA had taken over Nevada, did you? Or at least I didn't until I had read this. Uh, let's just start with a quote. Quote, for two days in March 2021, the Las Vegas outpost of the Democratic Socialists of America was perhaps the most powerful DSA chapter in the country, with its candidates gaining control of the whole Nevada Democratic Party. Then the inter-party bloodletting began. Two years and one election cycle later, some DSA-aligned candidates are running for re-election, but the Las Vegas DSA isn't endorsing them. Quote, this is our lesson, and we hope socialists everywhere will pay close attention. The Democratic Party is a dead end. End quote. The socialist group announced in a statement last month. End quote. So what I thought was really interesting here, and the author gets straight to it, which is the DSA realized, or at least this branch of the DSA realized, that the way forward is not through the Democratic Party. It's not transforming the Democratic Party into something that is acceptable for the DSA. They're going to have to build their grassroots efforts. They're really going to have to dig in and go talk to these voters and see what issues they care about, and then also make sure that their platform, their messaging, gets out there. And I think that's really important, because at the end of the day, it speaks to the fact that these two, this two-party system is so deeply ingrained. And, and when I say that, I don't necessarily mean in the populace. The people aren't saying, oh, yes, we have to have a two-party system. Trust me, I've talked to people on both sides who say that we probably should have more parties, more options, because at the end of the day, you just kind of pigeonhole each candidate into, oh, there are, oh, this one's D. I always vote D, so I'm just going to go down the ballot. Rather than 
if we had more candidates, you would actually have to do a little bit more research and have a better understanding of what's going on. Or you could more easily throw people into those categories. Oh, this person's a Green Party. Well, I know Green Party normally stands for this. Oh, I know the progressives normally stand for this. And then the Republicans and the Democrats would have to better define their platform based on that because they have to distinguish themselves from the Green Party and the progressives. They have to state where they're different, otherwise people won't see the incentive to vote for them necessarily. So maybe it's a good system, and maybe we should have these independent parties. And what the DSA has realized is that the Democratic Party, they are not willing to entertain them. Even though they gained power, this DSA chapter in Las Vegas, even though they gained power in Nevada, at the end of the day, the Democrats basically... They just said, no, we're not, we're not going to entertain you. We're going to run our own candidates from a different per, uh, area. We are going to have our own little separate branch where we're running our candidates, our mainstream, normal, block Democrats. So, you know, at the end of the day, the DSA has learned a wise lesson. And I want to highlight another quote here that really shows how much the Democratic Party was not in favor of giving DSA the reins in Nevada. Quote, in February 2021, with DSA-backed candidates poised to sweep party leadership elections, Nevada Democratic leadership moved $450,000 out of the state party funds and into a national fund for Democratic candidates. When DSA candidates won every single leadership position, they inherited a significantly lighter party bank account. Tick Salgerbaum a former state senator and current member of Nevada's Clark County Commission, is a DSA member. He said the socialist group had been optimistic after its 2021 wins. Quote, I think from the DSA's perspective, they felt like they were getting control of a mechanism which they could use to pursue their ends, their politics. End quote. Solgerbaum told the Daily Beast. Quote, but as a person who's been there before... I could see that winning that election didn't mean too much, end quote. After the money, the state's party established establishment staffers were next to go. Two days after the election, the entire Nevada Democratic Party staff quit rather than work with the new leftist leadership, end quote. And this is really speaking to the fact that the divisions are becoming very obvious between every single different group in the United States, and also that these people have become so devoted and so stuck in their ways that even if somebody else comes to control the party that they work for and they don't like those policies, they'll outright leave. They would rather leave, lose their jobs, and go find other candidates who would be willing to hire them than work for a more left-wing version of their own party. And, you know, more power to them. They have the right to do that. And if they want to and they feel like they can do better or they don't want to support it, that is a simple way to protest. But it really shows that people are stuck in this mentality of, no, 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 I'm not a progressive. I'm a mainstream Democrat. And if these progressives take over, we, we can't even indulge them. We can't even try to help them with their policies and maybe even moderate some of the policies that they want to propose and bring them back to reality if they're too far out of the bounds. 
because at the end of the day, we have our way of thinking and we are not willing to move from it. So we're going to outright quit. And I think this is a very dangerous perspective. I think the two lessons that have been learned from this example are, one, the DSA needs to move outside the Democratic Party because the people inside the Democratic Party, the mainstays, the bureaucrats, the staffers, they don't want the DSA within the Democratic Party, or at least to have a controlling stake. Maybe they can be on the fringes making certain policy decisions or trying to add certain welfare provisions, union provisions, things of that nature. But they can't have control. That doesn't really fit in the democratic narrative. And the other part that we learned from this example is at the end of the day, we have to break these boundaries, these artificial boundaries that we're putting up between one another. At the end of the day, the DSA came into the leadership position. And like I said, instead of attempting to moderate them, to work with them, to maybe understand where they're coming from and maybe integrate some of their policy positions, the progressives' policy positions, into the normal Democratic platform or vice versa, they're just outright saying, no, no, we have our boundaries and we're not going to cross them. And that kind of thinking gets us nowhere because if they're not even willing to negotiate with people that are closer to them, the DSA is most definitely closer to them policy-wise than conservatives, how do you ever expect them to work with conservatives in the state legislature or at the federal level? Because the more we draw these boundaries, the more distinctly we draw them between the groups that are a little bit closer together, then imagine what happens when you have a Democrat and a Republican who want to work together, who need to work together. Maybe a Democrat really needs one Republican vote on the other side of the aisle, but the party says the party system, not just one person or one senator, but the party system says, no, 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 no. This is not going to, we're not going to concede anything to this Republican because he's going to want this, this, and this. We need this to be a hard line, exactly what we want, no exceptions, and we will only pass it on partisan lines if we have to. We're not going to negotiate because they're too far off to the right. They're not going to come over to us. They're not going to give us what we want. They're not going to be able to best serve our goals. So, no, we're not going to negotiate with them. And that's extremely dangerous because at the end of the day, the more fine we make these borders, the less likely we are to communicate with one another and be willing to come to the other side and say, hey, I really, you know, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to give up this. That's what negotiating is all about when passing these major pieces of legislation. I'm going to give up this. Can you give up that so we can come to agreement on something bigger that's going to help both of our jurisdiction's voters? And it's scary to me when you see these hard lines being drawn. I know I said it three or four times now, but it only seems to be getting worse. And, you know, we don't have a Bill Clinton era when people are willing to go across the aisle and have bipartisan agreements, except for, at the very beginning, giving money to Ukraine and the CHIPS Act, which is an offensive move against China. So only when we see an external threat are we willing to come together, which is extremely, extremely silly because there are issues on which 
we can all probably come together, which is maybe onshoring jobs, bringing jobs back to America. Now, we may have different conversations about the role that unions should play, the role that certain private companies should play in that kind of bill. Or maybe there should be tax-free zones where industry can be built with reduced taxes, and maybe you can have a conversation about that and how much the taxes should be reduced, what kind of taxes should be reduced. But if we're not even willing to come to the table, if we're not even willing to say, oh, yes, I am going to negotiate with somebody else on the other side, you can't even have those discussions. That's enough ranting for me on that one. Obviously, I got my point across, and I repeated it a few times, but it's very important. And I think that at the end of the day, it's something that you guys need to hear. All right, let's jump to a story that is more about unity rather than the divisiveness that we are experiencing nowadays. This one comes from Slate. Why Katanji Brown-Jackson split with the court's liberals in a 5-4 decision. So if you don't get what they're saying here is Katanji Brown-Jackson actually sided with a conservative majority here when deciding a Supreme Court case. And I'll read you the, the first paragraph just so you have some understanding of what's going on. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court handed down a decision with an unprecedented 5-4 split. Binter versus U.S. featured a face-off between Justice Neil Gorsuch, writing for the majority, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett in dissent. And before we keep going with the quote, notice here that Gorsuch and Barrett would normally be considered conservative justices and would normally, you would assume, come down you know, with similar positions. So there's obviously a big contrast here. And what's even more interesting as the article, actually, I'll just continue with the quote. Quote, with Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson breaking with the liberals to give Gorsuch his decisive fifth vote. But it gets even stranger. Jackson was the only justice to join a key section of Gorsuch's opinion endorsing special solicitude for federal defendants' due process rights, end quote. And you know, this is a good thing in my mind because at the end of the day, it shows that people like Gatanji Brown-Jackson and Gorsuch, who are on completely different sides of the spectrum politically, if you were to break it down, now let's be clear, I've said before, I don't think the court should be broken down in these political terms that we use, conservative, liberal. At the end of the day, they do have certain points of view that line up with those different worldviews, different value systems that are employed. But I just don't like using the term. But it is good to see that people on the opposite side, maybe an originalist versus an interpret, uh, interpretist, they actually can come together on certain key issues and you know look past the political divide and say, well, no, no, this certain precedent is extremely important and we need to uphold that. It's reassuring to me that even the Supreme Court, which has gotten a lot of hate recently, is able to take a step back. Some of the justices are able to say, no, this is a valid argument, and I agree with that, even if it's politically charged and even if this person's on the completely opposite side of the aisle for me, I can still agree with his legal reasoning, and there's sound logic there. I think this is very encouraging because at the end of the day, 
like I said in the last section, well, some people may not be willing to go across the aisle and actually endorse different bills or be willing to cooperate with the other side. But this shows that there is still some goodwill in the Washington area that people could still come together and agree. Even if they don't get everything that they want, there are certain aspects of a bill that help their jurisdiction and they could be willing to negotiate or at least join the other side. And it's extremely, extremely important. Now, you may be asking, what is the exact thing that they agreed upon? And because I am not a legal expert by any means, I will jump to the article to give us a quote so we can better understand what they're actually agreeing upon here, because I do think it is important. Quote, the majority and dissenting opinions dueled over the statutory text, but Gorsuch went a step further, highlighting two other reasons to interpret the BSA narrowly. So the quote does go on, but let's define the BSA first. So the BSA is the Bank Secrecy Act, and the IRS is allowed under this act to fine people for having overseas bank accounts that they're not necessarily getting taxed for, uh, about $10,000 per violation or unwillful infraction. And the whole issue here is they're asking the question, the court's asking the question, is it, well, if they have 150 different bank accounts in different countries because they operate a business there, or they have a nonprofit that they're working with over there, and they have a bank account or a joint bank account, do they get charged $10,000 for all 150 150 bank accounts? Or do they get charged $10,000 for the violation of the fact that they're keeping that money overseas? And it doesn't matter how many accounts they have, they only have to pay that one $10,000. And Gorsuch and Kataji Brown-Jackson came down very specifically on this one. So let's jump back to the quote. Quote, First, he points out that the IRS has taken inconsistent positions on this question. Until 2019, it suggested in guidance documents that the penalty applied to each missed report, not each unreported account. Then the agency changed its mind. That's particularly troubling given that many Americans do not have an idea about their obligations under the BSA, and the government hasn't done much to educate them. End quote. So what they're saying here is, at the end of the day, you're not actually telling the people that this is a violation. And as the article goes on to state, they actually make it very convoluted and difficult in order to send this form into the IRS, informing them that there is an overseas bank account. And at the end of the day, that's not acceptable. You can't just change your rules and make it harder for people, or at least you can't change the rules for a process that is already hard enough in order to make sure that the IRS is properly informed so that you can get more fine money from them. That is unacceptable. Now, if they were consistent with their rules, maybe there's a different story here. And also, the other part of it here is that this there's this rule of lenity, which is the government should rule against itself when the law 
or the act that they are interpreting is ambiguous or unclear. They should never actually, in that case, be in favor of the government because at the end of the day, the government could there, therefore, in the future, say, okay, well, if this made it past the Supreme Court this time because it was ambiguous, we're just going to make the language a little bit more ambiguous next time so we'll make it past the Supreme Court, which is a dangerous, slippery slope, so to speak. So those are the two main reasons, and I think Ketanji Brown-Jackson and Gorsuch both agreed to this, or at least the article highlights that it's probably because they're both skeptical of the power of government, which at the end of the day is a very anti-authority position, and that can be held on the left and the right. So like I said at the beginning of this article, it's nice to see that even if they're on different sides of the political aisle, so to speak, they can agree that the government should not have overarching authority and it should be questioned and made sure that it's held liable. And it's nice to see that people can still agree upon that and that can even be a uniting feature in some cases. But, you know, we got, went through the bad, we went through the good, the hopeful. Now let's jump to something that's hopefully going to make you smile. This one is our daily delight from the dodo. Homeless pity smiles at everyone he meets, hoping they'll adopt him. So this cute little guy, he was abandoned in New York. His name is Donnie, and he's a pit bull who's about 62 pounds. Quote, some of our biggest dogs are also the biggest, mushiest babies, an ACC volunteer told the Dodo. It's so sweet and silly that they don't realize their own size or that most people are probably afraid of them, end quote. And, you know, that is true. A lot of pit bulls, they have a negative perception. But this guy, Donnie, he is one of the cutest. He's just so friendly. And, you know, at the end of the day, we probably need to get past this perception that all pit bulls are a little bit angry. And we should, you know, love a dog for what their personality is, not based on what breed they are. Quote, he was a bit on the fearful and nervous side when he came in, which is totally understandable. It feels extra special, though, when a dog like Donnie trusts you. When I started petting his big mush ball, his soft, he softly stood up and leaned in, thanking me with lots of kisses. The post caption reads, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of Donnie or read any of the articles from today's podcast, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the links to the podcast on Podvine, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Cast. And also, there is the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip, where I post the link directly to the YouTube video every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 8.30. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>